An epidemic swept through Memphis in 1878, and before it was done, it had killed more Americans than the late 19th century disasters of the Chicago Fire, the San Francisco Earthquake, and Johnstown Flood put together. Welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell. The story of this epidemic is explored in The American Plague, a book by Molly Caldwell Crosby. Molly, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So how did you get interested in this story in the beginning? I had recently moved to Memphis from Washington, D.C., and I had started to hear about this great yellow fever epidemic. I, I had never heard of it before. I love narrative nonfiction as a genre. I read a lot of those books, and many of them have centered on natural disasters like a great hurricane or a great fire, an earthquake. And I wanted to set out and do the same thing with an epidemic and show the way that the 18th and 19th centuries, that really was the natural disasters for so many of these towns and altered history for places like Memphis. So yellow fever and reading your book really comes across as the quintessential American epidemic and it really shapes so many things that happened in American history prior to the Memphis epidemic. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, it really did and and it was not because necessarily because of the death toll of the number of lives it took because there certainly were a lot of diseases like cholera and typhoid that were routinely hitting cities and and taking thousands of lives but this one affected um it was for one thing it was a very gruesome terrible disease, you know, much more than its name, yellow fever, (laughs) really indicates. But it shut down cities for months at a time. They didn't know at the time that it was being spread by mosquitoes, but they would have to quarantine the city during the summer months. And for a place like Memphis or New Orleans, that really had a, a huge effect on local commerce. But even really before it was hitting the South, it was hitting New York City and Philadelphia and Boston, any of the port towns. And Philadelphia had a terrible epidemic in 1793 that also killed a tenth of their population. So it did have a great effect on a number of cities, and it it has a few other kind of quirky things about it in history. It was used as as one example of biowarfare. Someone tried to (laughs) send a trunk of clothes from the Yellow Fever War to Abraham Lincoln in an attempt to assassinate him, and it helped precipitate the Louisiana Purchase. Napoleon lost 23,000 troops in the Caribbean to Yellow Fever and decided to leave and sell his land holdings. So for about 200 years, it was having an effect on a number of instances in our history. So how did Yellow Fever get to Memphis that particular summer? That summer, it had really been hitting this hemisphere through the the African slave trade. The mosquito that carries it was not native to this part of the world and came over on the slave boats, as did the virus. And so when they first started, they were really in South America, Latin America, the Caribbean, and would come up through ship trade. And that was the case in 1878. A shipment of sugar was coming up from Havana to New Orleans, and the captain is supposed to declare any cases of any fever really on board the ships and raise the flag, the Yellow Jack, which was a nickname for the disease. And he kept quiet about it because he didn't want to have to be have his ship quarantined for a couple of weeks. And then New Orleans started to have cases of fever and the jaundice and a lot of the telltale signs of yellow fever, and they kept quiet about it, not wanting to be quarantined. And it just continued that way for several weeks until it made its way up to Memphis, which really had been thought to be too far inland to have the same devastating epidemics that the coastal cities had. Turns out that it actually had the worst in history. To that date, it was the worst urban disaster the U.S. had ever seen. So what was the public health response to in the city of Memphis? At first, it was much like that of New Orleans. A lot of the physicians were sort of arguing over whether or not it was being spread by germs or if 
quarantining the city would help. They did keep it quiet from the public for the first couple of weeks when the outbreaks were occurring because they were afraid of the the mass exodus that would follow. And once they did go ahead and announce it, they lost half the population in less than a week. So it was very dramatic, and, you know, it was a, it was frightening news for anyone to hear anywhere in the U.S. The yellow fever had broken out somewhere. So for a lot of the doctors who were here, many of them who stayed behind and treated people, a lot of the frustration, I think, for them was that they didn't understand how it was being spread. And it was just taking hundreds of people a day by then. How about the federal government? Were they of much help? They didn't have the ability to, really. This is not too far after the Civil War. So the state still held a lot of rights. There was no FEMA to step in. And it was interesting when I was writing this book was about the time Hurricane Katrina hit. So it was sort of fascinating for me to watch the similarities and see that, you know, even today with all the technological advances we have and the knowledge we have, uh, we were still not a whole lot better off as far as clearing out a city in a natural disaster, taking care of the people left behind. And that was very much the case in Memphis with the added frightening element of anyone coming in to help was usually dying from the disease as well. So they were literally martyred coming here to try to help people. So why do you think this didn't kind of find its way into all the history books we we had in, in the United States? I really don't know. This one in particular surprises me because the second part of the book sort of goes into research and the work that the U.S. doctors do to try to find out what is causing these terrible epidemics like the one in Memphis. And it's Walter Reed who finally makes the connection between the mosquitoes and the yellow fever virus. And most people know his name. I certainly did from living in Washington, the Walter Reed Hospital. But I had never heard why he was famous or connected that story to yellow fever. So I really don't know why it was largely forgotten. I think one thing may be that we still face a lot of the natural disasters like hurricanes and tornadoes and fires that are written in books, and they still frighten us, but we don't really see a lot of epidemic diseases shutting down and wiping out populations anymore. So that may be one of the reasons we it's sort of we lost touch with that part of our history. If you're just tuning in, this is ReachMD Book Club. We are speaking with author Molly Caldwell-Crosby on her wonderful book, The American Plague. So you talked about Walter Reed's role, and he kind of seems to go in the Spanish-American War from a you know, fairly obscure officer to really someone who our nation's main military hospital is named after. Can you talk about his role? Really, since the federal government did not have a lot of recourse in handling disease outbreaks, both in, in major cities, but also among camps where there were soldiers usually stationed, they started to use Army doctors and Marine Corps doctors to do a lot of the research they were right in the midst of these army camps with diseases breaking out all around. It was, it was really sort of a good research situation for them. And that was the case in Cuba. Havana was regularly hit with yellow fever and malaria. During the Spanish-American War, for every one soldier that was killed by a bullet, seven died of disease. So Walter Reed is sent down there. He's really just a frontier doctor, and he is sent down there to start studying these outbreaks and see if they can't figure out what is spreading yellow fever because it's been devastating that and malaria to the American troops. And he sort of happens upon this outlandish idea that a Cuban doctor had come up with that it might be a mosquito spreading the virus. And so he and his team of doctors, known as the Yellow Fever Commission, set out to try to prove this. It's interesting because how would you prove a mosquito? How would you prove any vector is carrying a disease other than to test it? 
So these become human trials and self-infection among the doctors in order to, to prove this theory. And Reed had members of his team kind of die for their country. They really do. A lot of the volunteers for the studies were American soldiers. And, you know, as I said in the book, I, I think for a lot of them, their chances of dying from a disease were far greater than in, in actual battles. So they really did look at it like they were doing their a service to their country. And these doctors did too. These were army doctors. One of them self-infects purposefully and one accidentally, and one of them dies tragically. Just it's it's a terrible disease with ugly symptoms, and he leaves behind a pregnant wife in the United States. So it's a tragic, sad story, but ultimately a triumphant one. So Reed and his team kind of figure out the mosquito as a vector. How did this end up helping us with the Panama Canal? Just once we understood that's what was spreading it, a lot of places immediately went into action just controlling mosquitoes. Havana, in a matter of months, it had been having these epidemics for, you know, 200 years. In a matter of months, it was able to stop them just by cleaning up standing water sources. They filled their lakes with fish that would eat mosquito larvae. And this was a time period both in Panama, Cuba, and in the southern United States that we still kept a lot of standing water around homes. There wasn't good plumbing yet. And so people lived with water everywhere, and the mosquitoes were adapting to that and living among the people, and that made it so much easier to spread. Even today, we can see how hard it is to avoid mosquitoes in the summertime, certainly down here in Memphis. <laughs> is yellow fever still a threat? Is it just something that it's kind of one of these exotic third-world disorders, or is it something that could really rear its head once again in the United States? What do you think? No, it's definitely still a threat because it's it can live in monkey populations in the jungle and then be spread by mosquitoes into human populations in the city. There's no way to ever eradicate it. So they continue to kind of follow the mosquito that carries it. It's still all over the United States. You see them, um, little striped mosquitoes, during the summer months. And I think West Nile was a good example of how little control we have over vector-borne diseases. When that first hit in the early 90s, it was just a matter of years before it was spreading to states everywhere. So the CDC continues to monitor, especially down around the Caribbean the, and Texas and southern states. One of the things they can do, one of the tools, is to follow the mosquitoes that spread dengue fever. It's the same one that spreads yellow fever. So if they can kind of follow that, those outbreaks, they can test those mosquitoes. But it, it definitely remains a concern today. I, as I write in the book, that the World Health Organization only requires the reporting of three diseases, cholera, black plague, and yellow fever. So it's definitely still on their radar. I think you had an anecdote of someone who had come back from somewhere in the Amazon on vacation who hadn't gotten shots, who had brought yellow fever back to an American city. Yes, that person died, I believe, in, in Corpus Christi in Texas. But they've had five cases of Americans re returning from the Amazon who did not get yellow fever vaccines. And all five, you know, even with the best medical care available, all five died of yellow fever, fortunately, before it was able to spread any further in the population. But uh, doctors today, you know, seeing a case of this might not recognize it immediately. It's not something we see a lot in the U.S. So I think they, they monitor it and try to keep an eye on it. But it is still very much a threat. We, once someone has the, the virus, we're really no better off treating it today than we were in 1878. Do you think yellow fever is the reason the CDC is in the South? Certainly one of the big reasons, yes. It was really open to study and to 
to help monitor malaria, yellow fever, and the vector-borne diseases down here that were hitting so many of these southern cities. So, yes, I think <laughs> the CDC is very likely right in Atlanta for that reason. And, and and probably going back to Memphis, it probably really changed the course of Memphis, which are, I think really before this epidemic was really poised to really have a kind of a coming out as an American city, correct? It was. It was twice the size of Atlanta, and it was a large, booming city. It, it still today remains the one city to lose the largest portion of its population at one single time. And so it, it's never really fully rebounded, and the demographics changed. A lot of the problems in the city today, whether they be politics or racism or education or poverty, a lot of them can be traced back to sort of the outcome of this this particular epidemic. Thank you so much for being on the program. It's a wonderful book, The American Plague by Molly Caldwell-Crosby. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, John Russell. To listen to this and other programs in the series, please visit ReachMD.com. Thanks for listening.